My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you're visiting here today, my name is Mike Abici. Pastor Jimmy is, I think, visiting his in-laws or something. Is that correct, Ms. Bev? He's out of town at any rate. So he asked me to um, preach this morning. And if you've been here for the last several weeks, I don't know how long it's been. Jimmy's been um, doing a series on parenting and marriage and called Family First. And so this message that I'm going to preach this morning, I actually spoke... Um, at the men's conference, and uh, it was kind of on the same topic, leading, leading your family as a man of God. So I added to it this morning, shepherd-hearted. That is, I coined that phrase last night at some point, shepherd-hearted. Uh, we had a, there was an English king many years ago called Richard the Lionheart, so we're going we're gonna to use shepherd-heart as a real word today. But first, before we get there, I want to I point out a couple of things that the Scripture says that you give honor to whom honor is due. And this last year, starting, uh, I think it was around December, the Shad family and the Beachy family decided to meet on Wednesday night since we weren't having a Wednesday night program and kind of do our own little Wednesday night program. And this past week, we had our scripture memory recite-off. Is that a word? And... I want all of you kids, all Beachy and Shad kids to stand. So, Isaiah and Malachi, Jonathan, Dietrich, Serena, and Joshua all recited Isaiah 53 all the way through front to back. So, you can give them a round of applause. And then... Ezra, Joe, and where's, there's Adara, recited as much as they could. I think Adara got through verse 8, Ezra, Joe got through verse 5 or 6, and little Eric was on a different track. He just learned Psalm 23 and recited that all the way through. So you guys can sit down. I just wanted to honor them because I thought it was worth it. You know, it's so easy. It's so easy to say. I was thinking about as we were singing this morning. That was a good, great selection of songs. And I was thinking about as we were singing how easy it is to sit in here and be determined to do all the right things and make all the good decisions that you can, right? It's when you leave here that the problems start, right? And I thought about a, uh, I thought about a, a, qu- a little clip from The Wind in the Willows. If, if any of you read the book, there's a, there's a part in there where Toad in, in the wind in the willows is being foolish, and Badger sets out to change his mind. And Badger takes Toad and he puts him in a room and he talks to him eloquently for two hours. And he comes out and he says, Toad has changed. Toad is now a different man. And Toad comes out through a window. And when his friends confront him on it, he said, Oh, in there. I would say anything in there. Badger's so eloquent, you know. And he goes on to be foolish anyway. So it's very easy to decide one thing here and totally wipe it out by the next week. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning a little bit. Let's, um, let's start with uh, turning to 1 Peter. Chapter 5. I think, I think one of the problems in today's world is literally what we just talked about. We say one thing, and then we do something else. And as leaders in our family, which I'm going to be talking to the men primarily today, as leaders in the family, we don't really have that option. If you're going to, if you're going to do what Jesus wants you to do, you've got to be consistent. And so, uh, having said that, I'm going to preface what we're going to talk about with um, a caveat. So 1 Peter chapter 5 is actually um, talking to the elders of the church. 
And as I was preparing for the, for the men's conference, I was reading this passage and I, and I thought, I actually want to look at it and, and just run a little, bit of a, a little bit of a different angle on it. I want to talk about it, but I'm going to change it from, the, from it being directed to the five or six elders that are actually in charge of the church to being speaking to each of the men as elders in your family. And so each of you, as, as, as fathers or grandfathers, as husbands, actually fit in this because there is an entire flock, of, there's God's flock here at Bacon's Castle, but it's broken down into family units. And each of those family units has children in it, or grandchildren, that have an, an under-shepherd, and an under-shepherd is you. And so we're going to read this passage when, we talk, when it talks about elders, I want you to in mentally insert father in there for yourself. And to a lesser degree, I don't mean less as in not as important, but to a lesser degree, as a mother, I think it's applicable as well. So, so listen as a mother. Don't point fingers at your husband. See what you can learn from it as well. So starting in um, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you, fathers, shepherds God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, in the same way, you younger men be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him, because he cares about you. Be serious, be alert. Your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So, what can we learn from that today? So, I want to start with um, a little bit of conjecture. This is Micah speak here. Um, when I was growing up, Peter was sort of the apostle in my mind that was like the, the hardcore apostle. You know, the apostle of John, he was the, the love apostle. But as I've gotten older and, and read, 1 Peter is one of my favorite books, as I've read it, I actually think of Peter now more of a having been gentled and humbled to the point that he probably wasn't, by the end of his life, very, very loud-spoken. My guess is he was one of those men that, we'll put him on the spot, but I think he was a lot like Earl Weech. Don't comment, Brenda. I just think of him as sort of this, this cheerful man who you could talk to, you could enjoy talking to, but if you were wrong, he would correct you, but in such a way that you'd be willing to accept it. And I kind of think of him as being a little bit tired, too. You know, running from the beginning, being in charge of the church, having the handoff from Jesus, winding up in Babylon, just sort of like his life just being turned over and just being weary by the end of his life. Not weary in a bad way, but just having worn himself out for the gospel. So when I read this, I read it as, as, a, gentle, as a gentle reminder to me from a man who's been there, done that. All right, so First thing, what does it look like to be a shepherd? Because he says, shepherd God's flock. What does it look like to be a shepherd? Now, I have with me today one of my youngest cousins. I'm the second oldest in my family, and I think there's 64 of us cousins. And I have with me my cousin Andrew from Kentucky. He's 23. He's about half my age. And I had such a grand time with him last night because he likes the whole farming thing and, and he raises sheep. So that's where he comes in at this point. He raises sheep. I don't, do you consider yourself a shepherd? Not really. You let them do their thing, right? Um, we had a grand time talking last night, and I'm so grateful that he's here with us. But a shepherd, in the, in the context that they're talking about here, a shepherd is someone who basically kind of lives with his sheep. He is like the sheep are everything to him. So as I thought through, what does a shepherd do? I thought, I'm going to put my son on the spot and see if we can pull it off. Eric. 
Can you come up here for a moment? Barefoot and all. Do you think you could say Psalm 23? You want to try it? Say the Lord. Just say it real nice and loud and look out there. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. He maketh me. Maketh me. Keep going. You can do it. Lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He stores my soul and leads me in, in the paths of whiteness for his name's sake. Hey, so I walk through the shadow of death. I will feel no evil. For thou art with me. The water and my staff, they comfort me. Thou appearest the table before me. Thou anointest in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. I so well know hush for a Lord forever. Good job. Thank you. That's what a shepherd does. So I was thinking through Psalm 23 as I was thinking, what does a shepherd do? What, what, what makes a shepherd be something that we should emulate? How do, how do we look at a shepherd and then take that process and put it into our own lives? And this is what I came, to, uh, came up with. Simply, a shepherd leads his, flo- he leads his flock willingly because he loves his flock more than he loves himself. That's the essence of the shepherd. He lays down. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. The shepherd thinks more of his sheep than he does of himself. He goes out to find one when it's dark and cold and he'd rather be at home in his bed. He does what he needs to do to take care of the sheep. He leads his flock willingly because he loves them more than he loves himself. He leads his flock. Ultimately, a shepherd leads. That is what a shepherd does. He leads because he loves. And so that's where we're going to start from this morning. That's what Peter's saying to us as fathers and as grandfathers. Lead your flock. Shepherd your flock. Do something with them that's right because you love them more than you love yourself. So there's where we're going to start. There are three ways, in my opinion, there are three ways from this passage that that stuck out to me, three ways that you can lead as a shepherd effectively with your flock. And the first one we have up, so we'll go through the, I'll say the three of them. We lead by example. We lead with humility, and we lead with sober vigilance. So we're going to go through those three and look at each one of them. So first one, we lead by example. Verse 3 says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. We lead by example. So uh, the first thing on that that I want to say, and this actually, some of this ties back. I told, I told Jimmy when, I, when he asked me to share this sermon, I said, you've actually, you've actually shared most of what I'm going to say this morning, but I'll say it, and maybe you'll hear it differently coming out of my mouth, and, it'll, and something will catch you that you didn't get when he was saying it. Last week, uh, he talked about the negative side of leadership. Don't um, exasperate your children. Don't provoke your children to wrath. And, and this first this first point, there is some of that that will fall in, in here. The first thing I would say is do not ask your children to do something that you won't do. That seems fairly obvious, but it's easier said than done. Um, I just showed you that the Shod kids and the Beachy kids memorized Isaiah 53, and On Easter Sunday, Kelly Tuck got up, and I told Jimmy, I said, I don't remember what you talked about, but I remember Kelly Tuck's presentation of Ephesians 1. How many of you remember her quoting Ephesians 1? I tell you, it was one of the the most amazing things I've ever seen. And I left convicted. You know why I left convicted? Because my children were memorizing Scripture. Kelly Tuck memorized the whole passage. What am I doing? I'm asking them to do something I'm not willing to do. And so the other night, um, when we were reciting Isaiah 53, 
I pulled it out of my memory and I recited it with them from like 30 years ago. But I told them, somebody said, how did you learn? I said, well, when you listen to someone, you're reading it and you're listening to your kids reciting it over and over, it eventually gets in there somehow or another. So I was able to do it with them. But the question is, why would you not ask your children? There are some things, for instance, um, as a father, I have responsibilities that they don't have. So um, at our house, dinner dishes are divvied out between the kids. I remember those days. <laughs> Man, I did dishes and dishes and dishes and dishes all the time. I remember when we got a dishwasher, and it was so wonderful until I discovered you had to empty it to put it back, stuff back in it. I hated emptying the dishwasher so much that I got to the point where I'd rather just wash the dishes, and, and I just hated emptying the dishwasher. But I remember doing thousands of dishes. But I'll tell you what else I remember. I remember on Sunday afternoons, my dad who always made Sunday lunch, he would go to mom and he would say, you go lay down and take a nap. I got the dishes. Did he do them the rest of the week? No. And he didn't do them every Sunday. But my dad was never above doing the dishes because he too grew up doing thousands of dishes. And there's times, um, the kids will tell you, there's times when I'm able to step in when I'm not sleeping because I'm too tired. There's times when I'm able to step in and help them do dishes. I want them to know, even if I'm not doing them, that I'm more than willing to do them. I appreciate their help. So there are things that we carry as responsible adults that they don't have that responsibility. And so they're given chores that we could do, but we don't because we've got to divvy it out amongst everything. I'm not referring to having them do something that's necessary for the, for the cycle of the family and the day to go around. I'm talking about things like this. How many people do you know, maybe you grew up this way, where the children in a family were encouraged to come to Sunday school, but mom and dad didn't? What, is, what does that teach your children? It's important for kids, but not for adults. What do you think they're going to think when they're adults? If it's important for me now, it should be important for you. If it isn't important for you now, then why is it important for me now? Kids are perceptive, and they get that kind of stuff. It promotes hypocrisy. That's really the baseline. When you say, do, do what I say, not what I do, you're promoting hypocrisy. I was, uh, Jonathan and Joshua and I and Steve Johnson were replacing the, the roof on the uh, mowing shed. And I got to tell you, Steve passed the test. We were up on the roof, and he smacked his finger so hard with the hammer. Now, I wasn't paying attention because I was putting shingles on somewhere else. He smacked. I mean, it was bad. He said, and I can quote, whoa, that hurt. <laughs> Could I quote you if you had smacked your... Because that's the reality. You know what I knew? I knew that Steve didn't say anything other than that when he wasn't with me. Because when you smack your finger with a hammer, your brain doesn't have time to say, ooh, I'm around other Christians, I better not say it. It just comes out. And I said, I turned to him and I said, what happened? He said, I just hit my finger with a hammer. And he, I said, you passed the test. He said, what? I said, you didn't say a bad word. The reality is, is what we do catches up to us. And we're caught in moments of weakness primarily by our children. When Dietrich was... Pretty young. I don't remember how old he was. Old enough to be very comprehending of what was going on. Melissa and I had had a fight. And I very much lost my temper. And as I recall it, I walked out the door and in anger, just hit the side of the door as I went out. Slammed the door behind me. And you know what Dietrich said to, to Mama? Maybe, maybe you should get another guy to marry. Yeah, that's kind of funny, but it's not very funny. It's actually, that was, that, was, that was like knife to the heart when I heard that later. Everything is perceived by children, and they know hypocrisy. Now, do we mess up? Sure we mess up. Do we, we all, 
we, we, come to, we come to moments where it's a crisis moment, and we do things wrong sometimes. There, we'll get to that in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, is as a believer, we said a little bit ago, take my life, take my hands, take my feet, take my will, take everything about me, consecrate it to you so that everything I do moment by moment, day by day, honors you. We say that, we sing that, and then we leave here and we forget it. That's the problem. We forget what we're supposed to be doing. And the old habits come back, and the things that make us a hypocrite because we haven't changed and been transformed show up, and they show up not here. They show up in front of our families. And then our children grow up when they say, yeah, I don't really need to be a Christian. Why? Well, your parents are Christians? Yeah. And what they're thinking is, didn't seem to do much for them. You saw what they were on Sunday. I saw what they were the rest of the week. If they're not the same, your kids know it. You want them to have a servant's heart. You want them to have a servant's heart. And the only way to make them have a servant's heart is to lead the way. You lead by example. So they're watching every move. They're, they're, they're not just watching and listening. They're observing attitudes. You know, you as a parent, your child comes to you. There's a problem. You're watching. We had some attitudes at our house yesterday. You're watching the attitudes, and you can see right through the statements. I'm not upset. There's nothing wrong. Oh, really? I remember as a kid when my mom would make me take a nap. I'd start crying. Mom, I don't want to take a nap. She'd say, I can tell you're tired. How can you tell I'm tired? Because you're crying. I'm not crying because I'm tired. I'm crying because I have to take a nap. It was obvious to me, and it was obvious to her. They pick up on everything. They observe. They listen. They listen when you don't think they're listening. Eric's ears are so sharp. Man, he... I'll ask Melissa a question in the living room, and he answers it in the dining room. I didn't even know he was in there. Be careful what you say. Be careful... What you say about people in front of them, they might go and tell them. And in Surrey, everyone's related to somebody. Man, when I moved here, I found that out really quick. Don't say nothing to nobody about anybody. It'll get back to you. All right. Intentionally disciple them. Ephesians 6.4, which is what Jimmy was talking from last year or last week. Intentionally disciple them. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and the training of the Lord. That is something that is active that you have to, you have to um, chase that one down. It's not something that's just going to happen on its own. You look at them and you say, that child needs me to oversee their growth. We think nothing of it in the academic world. We think nothing of it in um, learning a trade or a skill or anything like that. But somehow or another... We just expect them to have their character molded and their, and their biblical uh, knowledge tank filled by somehow a little bit of church on Sunday morning and a little bit of Wednesday night and Sunday school. It's not going to happen. Deuteronomy says, teach them when you wake up, when you lay down, when you're walking, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, work with them. Intentionally disciple them. And then um, shepherd your children. <coughs> so if you're shepherding, a shepherd, I'm not a shepherd, but I do have cows. And I discovered when I got cows that cows are actually very interesting. They are different. I thought, you know, a Holstein was black and white, and that was about the extent of their difference. Every cow has a personality. Some are laid back, some are high strung. I had one that on Sunday morning, I think the demons got into her. And I'd have to chase her around the pasture until she decided that I was punished enough, then she'd come in and be milked. And it was like no issue. But five times around the pasture until, you know, I'm mad and there's not much Jesus in me on a Sunday morning, then I can milk her. So what I discovered was that when you're dealing with cows, you have to treat them differently because they're not all the same. They actually have personalities. Sheep have personalities, I'm sure, right? I, I, I suppose that you've got some that are more likely to get out than others. That's probably the case. Kids, very much so. So the only way to know how to shepherd your children is to get to know your children. And the only way to get to know your children is to be with them. You shepherd by spending time with them. Nothing, nothing is 
can, can, take, that, can take that place. You can't, you can't assume that somebody else knows about them because you see them at their worst and they see you at your worst, and so you're able to communicate better, hopefully. Love your children correctly. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Loving your children, the Bible says, if a man does not love his child, if he does not correct him. I found it easier to correct when I was 30 than when I was 45, because at 45 I'm tired. And last night something happened, I don't remember what it was. and It was last night or the night before, and Melissa said, we were sitting out on the porch, she said, do I have to go deal with that? And I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm supposed to be preaching on this. Do I have to go deal with that? So we dealt with it. But the fact of the matter is, it's so easy at the end of the day to let things go. It's so easy as you get older to let things go because it's just, you're tired. You're, you just don't feel like doing getting into battle at that point. And it affects that child. It's not just right now. It's the building of character into that child for the long term. You're leading by example, even in how you love your children with chastening. And that is a fact. Now, I'm gonna, I want to finish this first point by this one statement. So if you aren't writing notes, this is, I think, the most important thing that I can say this morning. So if you want to pull out a pen and write this, this is the most important thing. The point was, to we lead by example, and the point was an active lead by example. But the fact is, this is the baseline fact. You don't have a choice in it. You will lead by example, good or bad, whether you want to or not. Period. End of discussion. Everything you do in your family's life, everything you do, every word you say, every action you take, every attitude you have is open to their scrutiny and they will be scrutinizing it. Like it or not, that's how it works. Hypocrisy is a big deal. Hypocrisy... Um, uh, Jimmy's been, there's been over the last year, he's been sending different articles out to the elders on why the loss in the last generation, why there's so much loss from the church of young people just leaving and not coming back or, you know, how the biggest, the biggest part of it is hypocrisy. Now, I think that if a person says, well, the church is full of hypocrites, so I don't feel like coming. Just go away. I, I just I don't have any interest in dealing with that attitude. But when someone says, you know, my parents said they love Jesus, but I never saw it reflected in their life. What they're saying is my parents were hypocrites. I don't need what they had because they didn't have anything. And that is a sad indictment on the culture of the church. Unfortunately, that is where we're at oftentimes. Okay, second point. We lead with humility. Verse 5. Uh, starting partway through. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on Him because He cares about you. Why do we lead with humility? Why do we desire humility? We desire it because God's grace is on you as a humble person. One of the things that I noticed with Peter, if you read through the book of Peter, he doesn't give you... He doesn't give you commands to follow that are um, like emotional responses. He just says, do something. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Like he, he lays things out in such a way as you can do it. This is an act of the will. It's an act of the will because I love God and because His Holy Spirit is in me, I can do it. So he gives this one. He says, humble yourselves. Well, that, that's actually not something that we're, at least for me, I didn't, how, do you deal, how do you humble yourself? What do you do? You like put sackcloth and ashes on and walk around like that for a while? Oh, I'm being humbled. I'm being humbled. Do you go out deliberately and make a fool out of yourself so you can be humiliated? What does it mean to humble yourself? It obviously means something practical or Peter wouldn't have told us. This is what I think it means in this context. Ask your kids to see if they see any hypocrisy in you. Just sit down with them and say, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to get angry. What do you see in my life? Do you see places that I say this and I do that? Do you see me act this way at church? Oh boy, I pray like crazy over here, but I never pray over here. Do you see these things in my life? 
And then listen and see if they see those things in your life. And if they see those things in your life, guess what? It's going to be humbling. Keep your mouth shut. Years ago, um, I listened to a guy by the name of Jim Sammons, and he was talking about this very concept. But he took it, like you talk about humbling, he took it way out of the family. He had a big real estate company. And he went one day, he had heard this concept, and he went one day to his real estate office. He's the big guy. He owns the company. And one by one, he calls his employees in, and he sits them down, and he says, what do you think about our company? I'm curious to hear from you. And he said, of course, at the beginning, they're scared to death. You know, like, if I say anything to you that you don't like, you're going to fire me. But as he gained their confidence, they opened up, and he said, it was very humbling. You know, where he thought he was doing things right, they had all kinds of beefs with him. To his credit, he did not fight back. He listened quietly to them and thanked them for their input. And then he went back and sorted through them and figured out what were the things that he needed to change in the company. The fact of the matter is, is that is a big deal. If your children can come to you and tell you when you've done something wrong or when they think of you as having done something wrong, people will come to you. There, there's a lot of times um, we have... We have things, we have blind spots in our life, and there's a lot of times that there's people around you that see that blind spot and would like to speak, not in anger, not because they want to tear you down, but because, because it will benefit you. Uh, I, have, I have worked hard in the last number of years at not, not being so long-winded. Yeah, believe it or not, I have, I have worked on it. And one of the reasons for that was my brother Matt, when he got married, my wife was the videographer, and we weren't married at the time. We weren't even dating. And I got up, and I did the toast, and I spoke for half an hour. I, I, I'd spent a good portion of my life with this guy. I mean, I, oh, I had a lot to say. So she's doing the videoing, and she's doing the editing of this, of this wedding video for him. And after we got married, she's like, do you realize how long you talked? She cut it down to like five minutes or something so she could get it onto the video. And I, and I realized there was different times, things that happened in my life where I talked too long. And so I began to, I began to focus. But I'm glad that she told me, you talk too much, so you need to like say what you need to say, but compress it a little bit. Who wants to be around someone who's always talking and never listening, right? But if that person can't be shown that that's an issue... How will they ever learn that they're even doing it? So we have to humble ourselves and accept when somebody comes to us. And I think there would actually be a lot more growth within the body of Christ if we just maybe had some humble parties or something where we all get together and we just like, okay, I stand up and I say, what do y'all see? I mean, that would be hard. Wouldn't it be hard to stand up and have just everybody tell you all the wrong things you're doing? But then you have to sort through them because sometimes, even with your children, sometimes they'll see you, um, they'll perceive something. And they'll, they'll hold it against you. Dad, you were, you, when, you were, when you were upset with my brother over here about this, I was, I, I, that was just totally unfair. And I heard a story like that. There was bitterness held for years by a sister, against, by a daughter against her dad because of something that she heard him say to her brother. And after the dad was gone, the sister and the brother were talking one day, and she was telling him about this bitterness that she had held her. And he said, What? You were mad at dad about that? He said, I deserved everything he said to me that day. And she thought all those years of broken relationship because I believed something that wasn't even true. Had she gone to her dad, they might have been able to work it out and restore that relationship. So sometimes your kids come to you with something and it may not be true, but you let them tell you, humble yourself, look at it and see if there's anything to it and go back and fix what you can. If they call you on sin, accept it, repent, get over it, stop. You don't want to be a stumbling stone in the life of your child. Jesus said, remember when the disciples were telling him to send the kids away? We don't have time for that. And he said, you know, if, if offenses are going to come, things that hurt people are going to come in this life, but woe to the person that the offense comes through. He said, it would be better 
if a millstone, listen to this, this is Jesus speaking, it would be better if a millstone, a great big heavy chunk of stone, were tied to your neck and you were tossed overboard and drowned in the sea than that you had offended that child. Wow. That's what Jesus is thinking about you when your hypocrisy as a parent is causing your child's faith to come apart. It would have been better if you would never been born, Jesus is saying. Third point, lead with sober vigilance. Um, verse 8, be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So when I was growing up, being sober, I thought meant like not having any fun. I'm being sober-minded for the Lord. Can't laugh at that joke. Never have any fun. Work, work, work is all we do. That has nothing to do with it. When a drunk man comes back to his right mind, we call it being sober. He comes back to being able to think. To be sober, to be serious, to be able to think clearly is what we're talking about here. And part of thinking clearly is actually seeing what's going on. If you don't see the truth, if you have glasses on that are uh, amber, is that the yellow ones, where they make everything really bright, are you, you're not seeing a true picture. You're seeing what's there, but it's changed everything. It makes it look different. You put polarized lenses on, it cuts out some of the glare. You're not seeing what's actually there. And if you put glasses on that somebody has painted over, you can't see anything. Oh, it looks like it's dark out right now. No, it's not dark. Take the glasses off. You can only see truly when you can see what's actually there. Unfortunately, oftentimes for us, we wind up seeing things that we want to see as opposed to what's actually there. My grandpa said, you can only catch a fish when he's mad or hungry. Good point, Grandpa. Bait. I think about this every time I go fishing. Imagine, imagine if it was reversed. You know, the fish were fishing or manning for us, however you would say it. You're walking through, you're just walking through your yard and there's a steak hanging in the air. Smells good, looks good. Why is there a stake just hanging in the air? Well, I don't know, just dangling. Nah, 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 nah. And yet, how often, how often do we fall for stuff that is obviously bait if we were just in our right mind thinking soberly? How many men? I was talking to Dietrich about a man that I, I heard preach years ago. He had memorized two-thirds of the Bible. He was a president of a Christian law college. And when he got up to preach, he carried neither Bible nor notes. And he was an powerful, eloquent speaker. If he was preaching from 1 Peter 5, he simply quoted it to you. The notes were all in his head. And he was amazing. I heard him preach multiple times. And he lost it all because of a woman that came along. And you think, how is it possible? That's bait. How is it possible? How is it possible to know all that, to be that wise and fall to something as basic as a woman who's not your wife? You know what? Bait can look pretty good. And when you're in a bad frame of mind, everyone has days as clear-headed as you can be all the time. There are times when you're, you're not thinking straight and you can make some stupid decisions in that moment. So the first thing, if you want to be sober and you want to be vigilant, learn how to recognize bait. Young men, pornography is bait. Young men, premarital sex is bait. All of the things that you think your body just wants right now, whatever it is, it's bait. Old men. There's bait for you too. Some of it's the same bait. Looks really good, but it's got a treble hook attached to it. And you can't get off. 
recognize bait. And it, it's not going to be the same for everybody. There's things for me. Um, there's a lot of old tractors that have treble hooks attached to them for me. Because I would rescue every Ford 8N out there and I'd bring it home to my house until I couldn't move because there were so many Ford 8N tractors sitting on my property. You know what? That's a trap for me. Because the more stuff I have, the less time I have for relationships, which is really the most important thing. As simple as that. Golfing can be bait for some of you. That'll never be a bait for me. I refuse to touch a golf course. But for some of you, it might be tuck. You don't. You just don't want to go because you can't play. That's what your problem is. <laughs> Secondly, learn to hear the Holy Spirit because there's times when things come along and we don't know. We look at it and we say, I, "I don't know if there's a hook inside of this good thing or not," because it looks good, but I can't tell for sure. But sometimes the Holy Spirit, if you're listening, will give you some advice on it. Um, this happened many years ago for us. Uh, just. I don't know. It was Dietrich was just a little guy. I can't remember how old he was. But we were going to go on a date one night. We had set up for babysitters to take care of Dietrich. And I came home from work, and we're getting ready to go. And I just had a weight pressing on me. I just knew that I was not supposed to take Dietrich and leave him at that place that night. I had no reason why. Nothing had happened. I had heard nothing that would lead me to conclude that there was a problem. I just knew that that night I was not supposed to leave Dietrich there. But I thought I was crazy. So we're getting dressed, and it's just this weight is pressing on me. And I finally, I turned to Melissa, and I say, Babe, it sounds so nuts, but I don't think we're supposed to take Dietrich and leave him there and go on a date tonight. She whipped around, and she said, Me too. She said, I've been just this thing has been pressing on me. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do you know I have no idea what it was? Because we didn't do it. We stayed home. We called it off. I have no earthly idea what may or may not have been the problem that night. And I will never know, thank God. But you can look like an idiot sometimes doing stuff like that. Um, you have, there was not too long ago, Melissa and I both had the same, it was, it was the sensation, um, there was something going on and we just felt like it was not, couldn't put our fingers on anything. We just felt like it was the wrong thing to do. I don't know if we'll ever find out because I don't know, you know, the things that God protects you from, thankfully, he protected you from, you don't have to know what it was. And then I was thinking about this this week. Uh, I was thinking about it actually as I was talking about this or studying it, learn to hear the Holy Spirit. Something happened to me about, I don't know, it was seven, eight years ago. It was um, This is very unusual for me. So what I'm about to share sounds really weird, but I'm going to share it because I think that it's worth hearing. I was wakened in the middle of the night with a dream of like a demonic presence in my in our bedroom. Couldn't breathe. I'm like trying to call out the name of Jesus. And I finally am able to, to get the name of Jesus out. And the presence lifts a little bit. I'm, I'm laying in bed shaking. And I'm afraid, which ties to the next point. Stand firm in the faith, not reacting in fear. And I'm laying there in bed, and I'm like... Glad that the name of Jesus has the power to deal with these things. Very glad for that, but still struggling with it. And as I'm laying there, I can't go back to sleep. And I, and I feel this, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was a, a voice from the Lord that said, I want you to get out of bed and pray for someone. I don't know about you, but I don't like to get out of bed. And I thought, well, I'll just pray here laying in bed. And, and the Lord said, no get out of bed. And he just starts pressing on me, just the weight. And so I'm wide awake from this dream that I had. Now that dream is kind of going into the background and this other weight is on me. And so I finally, I'm like, okay, okay, Lord, I get it. I get it. So I get out of bed and I kneel down. He said, why would he, why kneel beside me? I can pray just as well laying down, but I get out and I kneel beside my bed and I begin to pray for this person. <clears throat> And as I begin praying, I start crying because I realize what I'm, what I'm asking the Lord for. He's telling me what to pray. He gave me the, the words, and it was, pray that this person's 
flesh would be destroyed so that her soul would be saved. That's a terrifying thing to pray. I had no idea what was going on. No idea. Still to this day, I don't know what it was about. But I start praying that prayer, and as I'm praying, I start just sobbing because of knowing what I'm asking for. And it was clearly from the Holy Spirit, so I'm, I'm like fearful even of what's going on. And I, and I just prayed that verse, and he said, pray it again. And I prayed it again. <clears throat> and the, the burden hadn't lifted. And he said, pray it again. And I want to tell you, this is a true story. This is a true story. I'm, stand, I'm, I'm on my knees beside the bed, sobbing. And from the bedroom across the hall where my boys are, they start screaming like somebody's killing them over there. I knew it was demonic. Still, hair was up on my neck. I got up and I went over there. And I walk in the room thinking that they probably had nightmares too and that you know they're sitting up in bed and I'm going to have to comfort them. They were sound asleep, screaming. So I'm like, good gracious, what is going on? I mean, I'm in the middle of something significant here. So I stand in the room and I rebuke the devil in the name of Jesus, using the authority that we have in his name against the devil. And like that, command him to leave. And the screaming stops and they're sleeping quietly and there's no screaming. So I go back to my bedroom and I kneel back down and he says, pray it again. And I pray one more time. And then he said, you can get up and go back to bed. And the, the, the weight was gone. I cannot explain to you what was going on. To this day, I don't know what that was about. I only know that I was obedient to what the Holy Spirit was saying in that moment. But it was intensely real. When you're dealing with supernatural and it's showing up in your physical world through your kids who don't even know they're being a part of it, it is, it's incredibly freaky. And I tell you, I can't... Coming out of that night, I was so glad to have the power of the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in me to rest in because I didn't have it on my own. I was no way I could go up against that. I don't know. I stand before you today not knowing whatever was the result of that. I only know that he asked me to do it, and in that moment, I did. And when he was done, the weight lifted, and he said, you can go to sleep. And I went to sleep and slept fine. Learn to hear the Holy Spirit and obey the Holy Spirit in those times when you think I'm being crazy, but he knows something I don't know because he can recognize bait when you don't. Stand firm in faith, not reacting in fear. They tell me that in a lion, in the pride of lions, when a lion gets too old to be a part of the chase, the lion pride will put the, the old guy who doesn't have the teeth to take down the guy, the, the gazelle, they'll put him over there and he'll roar. And the rest of them are hiding here. And they drive the prey by fear of the lion's roar right into the quiet lions who take them down. So that thing in your life that's scaring you, that's a, that's a fearful thing, that's, that's the roar in your ears, may be the thing that's trying to get you to jump in fear, reacting in fear and run and do something that will get your family eaten. You understand what I'm saying? The shepherd does not run. And I want to I say this finally for the, uh, for the sheep. The sheep are, the sheep are helpless. They, have, they can't run very fast. They fall on their back. You could flip them back over. They have no teeth to chew on anything with. Their only protection is what you can give them as the shepherd. And Jesus said in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but the hired one doesn't. The hired one, when he hears the wolf, he takes off running because he doesn't care for the sheep. So if you're a dad and you are afraid of the wolf and you run, you're leaving your sheep with no protection and the wolf is much bigger than they are and there will be terrible consequences. So um, I want to I close with a word. Uh, I want to shut it down with a word picture. Um, several years ago, I don't even remember what it was, but Jimmy was preaching, uh, I think it was in Titus. Uh, I don't know what he was preaching, but he, he mentioned the, the verse in Titus 2 where it says that the older women are to teach the younger women uh, to be discreet and to be you know, good wives and good mothers. And one of the things it says in, in this translation is that they are to be homemakers. That's the, the Christian standard says homemakers. 
um, to teach the older women to teach young women to be homemakers. Well, the King James renders it as keepers at home, which sounds like, you know, the women are supposed to stay home. So we went after that sermon, we went home because he said it as homemakers. I'm like, wait a minute, my Bible says there maybe there's some difference here. And so we went home and started studying the, the, the actual, the original Greek of that word. And that word keeper at home has not, does not do with vacuuming your house and, and washing the windows. It has a whole different context. And so I want to I build a word picture for you to close out with. I want you to imagine right here in Virginia, somewhere out around Danville, about 1700. You've moved with your family to the frontier because the land is cheap. And if you can stick it out for 10 years, you got it. But when you get there, it's wilderness. There's no police force. There's no soldiery. There's no anything except maybe the few families that went with you. And so you frantically start as a dad. You start chopping down trees and you build a log cabin. And that log cabin, you clear out from that log cabin because if you can get the trees away from it, you can see bad things before they get to you. Now you have a gun. You have a, an old Kentucky long rifle. That's the only one you got. And it's just you and your wife and a couple of kids. And you got a log cabin with one door and maybe a window. And in that woods, all the way around you are enemies, and you know they're there. There are Indians that don't want you there. There's mountain lions that don't want you there. There are bear. There are things that will kill you and will kill your family. This is the reality, 1700 Western Virginia. You can't change that reality. The only thing you can do is outwit that reality. So there's things you do. For instance, kids do not go into the woods by themselves. You don't go play down by the creek. You go down there, I give you permission to go down there until we know that there's no panthers in the area. You don't get to go down there by yourself. All right? But there comes a point when you run out of supplies. And as a dad, it's a day's journey back to the last settlement where they have a trading post. You need flour, salt, and sugar, and some other things. And you've got to go back and get it. Here's the picture. While you're there, that door is guarded. The gun is in your hands, and nothing is coming into that house. And you're on high alert all the time because kids, you knew a family down the road that the Indians stole their child when they were just coming through the woods, and they just happened to nab him, and that's the only thing you can figure out because they just disappeared. And that, you're not going to let that happen to your kids. So when you leave, you say, sweetheart, I'm going to be gone for two days. Here's what's going to happen. I'm leaving the gun here. Nobody comes in this door. And when you have to go out to do chores, you guys go out with the gun. Somebody's standing on alert just in case there's somebody in the woods that wants to take the kids. When I come back, I want everybody here. And while daddy is in town getting supplies, mama's got the gun. And nobody's going to take those kids until daddy gets back. You understand what I'm saying? That's what that word means, keeper, the defender of the home. And I'll tell you what happened in our house when we saw what that word picture was. It changed, it changed how we looked at our day. My wife is a stay-at-home mom, one of those dumb things. My wife is a stay-at-home mom. Actually, my wife is a keeper at home. And when I leave for the day and I go to work and I'm, I'm somewhere else and I'm not at home to protect, I'm not at home to oversee, my wife has got the gun and nobody gets to my kids until I get home. You know what that means? She's got no time for herself. She's got to monitor all the internet that comes into the house. Everything has to be locked down and when they need this... Somebody has to, our kids aren't allowed to just go on the internet. They can go, but it's under supervision because I don't want pornography to be a problem for my kids. I want that to be, I want a gun in front of the door. You understand what I'm saying? So my wife keeps the home until I can get back home. And there's days when she'll call me and say, I need you to get back because I have just about done. She's about to turn the gun on the kids sometimes. <laughs> Which would, you know, I guess maybe that did happen on the frontier sometimes. Um, 
That's the reality. Because daddy knows what's in the woods. Mama knows what's in the woods. But the kids begin to grow up. They've heard their whole life. They've lived on the frontier. Yeah, dad talks about those Indians out in the woods that are going to capture us. And I ain't never seen a mountain lion in my life. Right? Is that what happens? What does it take for them? Children, this is where you come in. Sometimes you just have to do what daddy says because he's been there longer than you've been. And you recognize his wisdom. And if dad has been consistent and has been able to live what he says so that he can tell you, follow me as I follow Christ, you're going to be more likely to be able to keep his uh, assurance of your wisdom as he goes through those hard times. Unfortunately, I will tell you what, the, what, our, what our culture has done, and I'm going to keep it inside of this word picture. 1700, this cool new device comes out. It's a cool window that changes reality. And so daddy gets one at the settlement. He brings it back. Look at this. We can kind of see what's going on around us. And nobody, we don't have to go anywhere. And so he takes his axe and he chops a hole in the side of the log cabin and he puts this window in it. And when you look through this window, guess what you see? You see a warped version of reality. You see the panthers as they chase the deer. And the panthers kind of wave back at you as they go past. You see the Indians out in the woods and you're just like, come on. If you haven't figured it out yet, that's the screen in your home. And what we've done, unfortunately, is we put this big screen in our home. We've, we've chopped a giant hole in the, in, the, in the side of our house, the protection for our family, and we've allowed our children to see not reality. It's not a window with glass in it. We've allowed them to see a warped reality. And Hollywood is out there saying, it's not that bad. Look, see, everything's changing. It's a cool new world. And we wonder why they get confused. Be careful with that. Be careful with that. Control, monitor, put a gun in front of everything in your house. Do you understand what I'm saying? Make your house safe. And then work inside on the world that's still inside your kids, right? And yourself. So in conclusion, how do I apply this message? You lead by example. You will lead by example, good or bad, whether you like it or not. You lead with humility. When you mess up, Ask forgiveness. It's the dumbest thing in the world to think that my kids will respect me less if I acknowledge that I've messed up and ask their forgiveness. You really think that if the guy that you work with messed up and refused to tell you that he was sorry for making you look bad, you're going to respect him more for that than him coming to you and humbly saying, I am sorry I messed up. No, you're going to respect him more. It's the same for your children. Lead with sober minders. In conclusion, this is don't lose sight of real reality. Don't lose sight of what's actually in the woods. That will destroy your children. The devil, it says right here, he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can, he can destroy. The world is full of baited traps, and you're the shepherd. You are the shepherd that God has assigned to your little flock to lead and protect your children. There is no downtime. If you're a dad, Kenny, you just join the party. It's over for you. You don't get to be Kenny anymore. You're only dad. There is no break. You don't get to say, okay, after 10 o'clock, I can cuss all I want. That's not how it works. There is no break. They're, they're watching, and they're actually watching to see when you fail, okay? Just keep that in mind. You're their shepherd. So remember that everything you do, say, or reflect by attitude is leading them by example. Humble yourself regularly. Ask forgiveness for your failures. Remember that you are training, listen carefully, the shepherds for the next generation. Sometime the sheep will grow up and they will become shepherds and there'll be a whole new generation of sheep. What do you want those sheep to be trained by with their shepherd? Put that into yours. Get to know the good shepherd and pray always for his wisdom. So I want to I I close with... I want to close with something that I wrote for myself. I, as I've told you before, I come from, I think it's almost 14, 12 generations, 14 generations of faithfulness of one father passing Christ on to the next generation. It's now at my generation. So I'm going to read this to you. My name is Micah Beachy. 
I'm the son of Noah Eli Beachy, the grandson of Eli Walter Beachy, the great-grandson of Noah E. Beachy, the great-great-grandson of Eli N. Beachy, and the great-great-great-grandson of Noah P. Beachy. I stand on the shoulders of ordinary men whose faith in Jesus Christ and love of God's Word was passed down to me. The heritage of faithful men of God is so great that I tremble to be the recipient. And yet every one of those men in their day faced their own humanity, their own fears, their own struggles. But now it's my turn. My faith is on the line. My family hangs in the balance. And the generations to come depend on me to faithfully lead my children to walk with and love their Creator and Savior. That is a sobering, sobering thought. From this point forward, it hangs on you. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.